This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and I am thrilled to be with you this Thursday night. Our telephone number, if you want to give us a holler, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. The big story of the evening is the testimony that was given by the FBI whistleblowers on Capitol Hill and the weaponization of government subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee. I watched it. I know many of you have not had an opportunity to hear it. I could only imagine. I was once a person that also relied on talk radio and watching the news at night and things like that to get my daily dose of news. But I did watch this thing all day while you guys were slaving away at work, doing what it is that you do every day to make your life better and to provide for your families. And I don't blame anybody for not watching this, by the way. I understand that, you know, everybody has something better to do than watch C-SPAN or whatever is you're going to watch to watch, you know, all of the rhetoric go back and forth. And I've got to say, just on a quick aside, some amazing rhetoricians in Congress. I mean, that's obviously the, the, the height, right, of that. But really good, really good debate today. Really good. I, I have to be very um, frank, very fair. The Democrats had some really, really good points. They were lying through their teeth. But the points were were rooted in, in very saleable, marketable ideas. Um, one of the first that I heard in the opening statements from the ranking member on this subcommittee, uh, Stacey Plaskett from Brooklyn, New York, BK, uh, where, where I hail from originally. Um, not a fan of hers per se, but I have to say uh, the way that she used her rhetoric almost would make somebody who didn't know what was going on believe every word she said because it was very, very catchy. And this is what I think a, a good rhetorician does is they they convince people of things, and I'm we're gonna I'm gonna play you that audio so that you hear it with full of context. It's about a minute long, not 12 seconds or 15 seconds. I'm giving you the full chunk of it because I want you to hear everything that was said. And then a little bit later, we're gonna have one of the whistleblowers that was in Congress joining us live on the show. But before I get into any of that, I wanted to say that after watching uh, the the hearing today, of course, like many Americans, I was very disheartened. I was disheartened because I, I see you know, our great nation and what we're going through and where we've come and how, you know, even within the FBI, there were people going after, you know, their own, 
right? Cracking down on these guys because they, they asked questions because they dared to be whistleblowers. And obviously that's not cool. No question that's not cool. But it made me realize that, you know, many years ago, I'd heard the quote, our justice system isn't perfect, but it's the best one on earth. And meaning we don't get it right every time, but better than ours, there isn't one. And I believe that. Uh, I really believe that about our system of justice then, and I believe it today. However, I will say that about our political system overall, I feel the same exact way. It doesn't mean that we are this bastion of perfection. We don't live in a utopia. We don't live in, uh, as much as I would like this to be a, a perfect constitutional republic, it's not. We, this is a constitutional republic that is fraught with fraud, that has people within it that want to destroy it, people within it that want to strengthen it, which is a good thing, but they may never see the strengthening they want to get. Because similar to our legal system of justice, we, uh, it's the best that there is, and it's not perfect. So this stuff that we're seeing, this weaponization, the way they went after parents and school boards, the way they are going after FBI agents that dared ask questions about why are we doing it this way? Why are you saying that when that doesn't seem to be the case? Just for asking questions, for doing their job. The same way we saw the system of, of law enforcement, federal law enforcement, weaponized against Trump and anything Trump-related, because, in fact, that's still the case here, right? They didn't go after these guys really because they were Republicans or because they were conservatives or because they had served in the military or because they'd served their country in the FBI. No, they went after them because they asked questions, and the questions they were asking were to seek fairness, but not fairness for a Democrat, fairness for Trump or someone in Trump world. And it's this reason that they were ostracized and singled out, in my opinion. And I don't think we do come back from this. People say, you know, do we come back? And I don't think we come back from this. I think this is like getting into a fight and somebody punching you in the face. You don't come back. You can't get unpunched in the face. You can't unpunch somebody in the face. You catch your black eye, whatever it is, the shiner goes away, it heals. Maybe there's a bruised scar, fractured orbital bone. Who knows? You don't stay the same, but you do move on. God willing, right? You move on. The key is to not let our system continue to rot any further. It's no question that this type of thinking where, you, you know, it's all good and dandy. If you're in politics, if you're in in uh, media commentary, if, if you're uh, anybody except those that put their hand, uh, you know, on the Bible and raise their right hand and swear an oath to the Constitution, everybody except those people, everything's fair because it's a war out there, right? So it's a war of words. It's a war of ideas. But if you're sworn to uphold the United States Constitution, you have to play a different way, right? You can't go for the jugular every time. You have a set of rules, and you should respect those rules, and you shouldn't go after people for their political ideology, right? But we're in a system right now where people who hate our system are rotting our system. They're a rot on our system. 
this erosion, this decay from within, this is a problem. And our job is to make sure that it erodes no further, that we only move forward and never move back to what to where we were. And again, I want to underscore that watching this today, some Democrats sounded like clowns, like they usually do. But some of the Democrats today, I thought to myself, if I picked somebody who was an apolitical observer and came and watched this, some of them would think, my goodness, the way they were eloquently demonizing these FBI members, um, you would think, my goodness, uh, they had them dead to rights. So I think it's, it's incumbent upon us to be smart enough to know the difference and to make sure we let others know how important it is to know what's going on so that we never move back. It never happens again. And we end the rot here. Anyway, I just wanted to share those thoughts with you. I have a lot more to share with you. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but straight ahead, we're going to come back with Stephen Friend. He is one of the whistleblowers that was uh, testifying in Congress today. We're going to talk about his story straight ahead. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This hearing is an insult to the brave whistleblowers out there who do risk their careers for the good of their country. This circus of invented secret accusations puts at risk the critical role whistleblowers play in holding the power, uh, powerful accountable. Most whistleblowers aren't interested in, in being political pawns in congressional Republicans' games. Playing politics is holding up this scheme as whistleblowers will make other public servants fearful of coming forward out of fear they'll just be used. All right, America, welcome back. That is Representative Sylvia Garcia at the weaponization hearing today uh, calling the FBI whistleblowers that were sitting before her political pawns. Again, and this came on the heels of Representative Stacey Plaskett, who's the ranking member on this committee, saying that, uh, subcommittee rather, saying that this right here is defund the police on steroids. I mean, when I tell you that the rhetoric was flying out of control and you couldn't, if you weren't following the story and you were apolitical and you were on your lunch break and, you know, vote every four years like every other good American, you, you would have been so uh, bewildered by these, these honorable men and women that were standing there, men that were standing there talking about their experience as whistleblowers. And then these Congress people that were seemingly demonizing them with a smile. And it was just uh, it was a bizarre thing to watch. It was ruthless. And uh, we've got one of those patriots with us today. Stephen Friend, uh, he was uh, a SWAT team member in the FBI, and he's with us right now. Stephen Friend, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Uh, well, I want to thank you for your testimony today, because I think Americans all across the country needed to hear that. And and I want to dig into it because I know a lot of people didn't get a chance to hear everything that you said. But. I want to get your initial reaction to what it, what was it like? Obviously, you, you've been on the receiving end of your superiors weaponizing government against Americans and, in, in fact, it weaponizing their, their power against you for being a whistleblower. But what was it like to see your elected officials, members of Congress sitting there, um, for lack of a better word, beating the crap out of you people for, for literally doing your job and doing the right thing? 
It's very disappointing, but uh, unfortunately, I've been able to develop sort of a pretty thick callus um, after uh, coming out uh, last September and just being treated this way by uh, by mainstream media and uh, and, and the FBI uh, interfaces who I've had to deal with in, in my interactions with them. Uh, it's just been a very consistent treatment where uh, the, the simple resolution, and, and it was something that I was hoping to get across in my opening statement, but unfortunately fell on deaf ears uh, on the Democrat side, was I, I brought my concerns forward out of a genuine worry that the FBI was not fulfilling its oath of office and not doing a good job. I wanted to make the workplace better. Um, I didn't have to be right. I could be wrong. It is not incumbent on me to be right, just reasonable. I have to have a reasonable concern of waste, fraud, abuse, or risk to the public safety. I brought those concerns forward, and they could say, hey, Steve, you're wrong, and here's why, and I'd go back to work. And if they said, hey, Steve, you're right, and we're going to fix it, and I'd go back to work. But at the end of the day, they just decided to contrive a way to walk me out of the of the FBI office, and uh, as a result of that, have left me in an unpaid status. But uh, I just keeps going back to you get all the flack when you're over the target, and I think that the reason I got that treatment and that Garrett of Boyle got that treatment and Marcus Allen got that treatment is that we're over the target. Yeah, without question, I, I think you're onto something there. I just I really couldn't get past um, how how um, how well crafted their rhetoric was to make you guys out to be the, the worst FBI agents that ever existed. And, you know, what, what I think would benefit this audience, because, again, like I said, not everybody was home during the day to watch that. Uh, but could you tell us a little bit about your background, you know, how you ended up at the FBI, you know, coming out of school and, and what that journey was like for you? You bet. Um, I, uh, I originally went to, I went to the University of Notre Dame uh, to become an accountant. My, my dad's an accountant was just going to be a CPA. I uh, did one tax season and realized that I would rather, uh, rather do something else and go through another one. And uh, <laughs> I'd always, had always been drawn to, uh, to some sort of public service. I, I'd been recruited to go to um, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Uh, but well, unfortunately, I'm asthmatic and still to this day take medication every day and was just not going to be able to pass a, a physical. Uh, and then the, uh, the idea of law enforcement sort of piqued my interest because it would sort of be a way to serve my community uh, directly. I could basically deploy every day but go home at night um, and, uh, and decided ultimately to become a police officer. And was one for uh, for between four and five years in my community in, in Savannah, Georgia, and then uh, was encouraged by my wife actually to uh, to really look into the FBI. And uh, you know, it's one of those Hollywood TV shows sort of jobs where you just think like, well, that would be great. Mm-hmm. That'll never happen. But uh, pursued it, and it was a dream for me. And it took four years, but uh, eventually was hired in 2014, and then joined the FBI. And uh, was sent to my first assignment. So being from the southeast in uh, in Georgia, the FBI naturally saw fit to send me to Northwest Iowa. And uh, <laughs> lucky you. Spent, uh, but it was a great assignment for me. I, I loved it. It was seven years on the Indian reservations that were actually in northeastern Nebraska. I would drive over the state line every day, and investigated violent crimes. Had a chance. Uh, most most FBI agents, a little known secret, uh, really very rarely arrest subjects and very almost never go to go to trial. Uh, I arrested 150 violent criminals in seven years. I went to trial eight times and really got to be a violent crime detective for these small communities and really impact them in a very positive way. Uh, And after after doing seven years there, it was time to get a little bit closer to home. So I uh, elected to take a transfer to Daytona Beach, Florida, 
and uh, took that transfer with the understanding I was going to be working child pornography and human trafficking investigations, which is, again, a very niche area in the FBI. It's uh, definitely a, it's work that's very rewarding, but it's also very difficult. And, uh, and, and took that transfer, but after a few months was reassigned to work on the, the Joint Terrorism Task Force in my office. And at that point, which was in uh, October of 2021, um, was really the first time I got a chance to, to look at January 6th cases in my office. Um, and, uh, and just as a side note, uh, the, the child pornography cases I was told were not going to be worked going forward after I was reassigned. They were going to be no longer resourced to my office. So those were just fell by the way. Clearly side. January 6th is way more important than child oh, pornography. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so, you know, sort of a long winded way, but uh, it's necessary to, to give you that little background because in, uh, in seven years and opening over 200 cases, I was very familiar with the FBI's Diog, the Domestic Investigations Operations Guide. It's the rule book to eventually, to essentially, do cases in the FBI. Um, and when I got my first look at January 6th cases in my office, it was apparent immediately that the FBI is departing from the rules that the Diog spells out for how to do cases. And I became concerned that uh, the reason for that, and was very clear to me, uh, was to manipulate the the crime stats to create the illusion that domestic terrorism is a far, far bigger problem in America than it actually is. And then uh, at the end of those Let's stop right there, because I think that's a really, really, really important point, right? Because, I mean, every time uh, you turn on the news, and I turn on the news more than most people, uh, all you hear at least once a week, twice a week, somebody somewhere citing the FBI says that the biggest threat in America is... um, domestic violent extremists within white supremacist groups. And it, it, it seems like I, I, it keeps falling. Uh, it, it misses me, right? I, I don't see it. <laughs> I can't find these Nazis. I don't know where they are, but, and I'm sure I'm not making light of it. I realize that that is a thing. I just haven't seen it to the, to the level where they're saying that it's the biggest threat in America. Correct. Correct. And it's a derivative of a couple of very, very, bad problems in the FBI, but just to stay on topic for a moment before, I'd be happy to get into those with you. Uh, January 6th should be one Before case. you get into that, Stephen Friend, let me remind everybody who you are, and we're going to take a quick pause and come right back. Uh, we're on with Stephen Friend. He is a senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. He's also the author of True Blue. This is a book you want to check out. I, I think uh, it's enlightening what, what he writes in the book, and it's available on June 13th. I think you should pre-order it right now. You know my style. Get two copies, one for yourself, one to give away. Father's Day's coming up. True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower uh, by Stephen Friend. Again, the, the title, True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. That's coming out on June 13th. You can pre-order that right now. I recommend pre-ordering two copies. Plus, you get to save money when you do it now. Uh, again, our guest is Stephen Friend. He's coming right back with us. Our phone number, 833-482-5337. Don't move a muscle. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Welcome back. Our guest, Stephen Friend, he's a suspended FBI agent. He's the author of a forthcoming book, True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. Hardcover's coming out June 13th. I recommend pre-ordering now. Get a copy for yourself, one to give away. Stephen Friend, before we uh, took the pause, uh, you were describing how you were working uh, these cases and and had noticed that there was an uptick in in what they were calling um, whatever they were calling it, the white supremacy cases. And, and they were trying to cook the books in essence. Let's pick up where you left off. Yep. Yep. So uh, think of uh, January 6th should be one case. It's one incident in Washington, DC. And the normal rules for the FBI would be to operate it as so, but instead the, uh, the FBI elected to open up a different case for every single person that uh, they deemed to be a subject on January 6th. And instead of uh, saying that those were Washington, D.C. cases, they decided to assign them to the offices where those individuals resided. So if you lived in Sacramento and happened to be at the Capitol that day, Sacramento, uh, the FBI field office there would have the case. That's very unusual. You're saying that's not typical to to the way they typically do the caseload. Correct. It, it is it is allowable. It's very atypical. But the uh, the ultimate uh, way that they gave away the game here is there was a task force in Washington D.C. that is still controlling the cases. So they were not willing to give up control, uh, but uh, on paper wanted to have the illusion of now one case turning into thousands and spreading them geographically around the country. So it looks like there's a rise in domestic terrorism in Sacramento and Milwaukee and Denver. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and and that is what is justifying the uh, the president and the attorney general and the director of the FBI when they talk about the rise in violent domestic extremism. Uh, they've they've cooked the books, and uh, it's now led to enhanced funding for the FBI. It's uh, it led to these talking points that are guiding our federal government. And uh, perhaps most disgusting of all, and the thing that I want most everybody to be aware of regardless of where your political ideology falls, this is important, is that uh, senior executive service members in the FBI receive bonus compensation for these numbers being met. So people are profiting off of them. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I had no idea <laughs> that you could get a bonus <laughs> off of these. It's just insane. I laugh because I, I, I can't believe it. It's incredulity that you're hearing. 
Uh, folks, we're on with Stephen Friend. He was on Capitol Hill earlier today testifying as an FBI whistleblower and about how they've retaliated against him. And um, to help us uh, to, uh, with uh, understanding the rest of that story. So the January 6th stuff is happening. They're putting it all over the place. What is it that you do that really pisses them off? Well, I brought forward the concerns that I just laid out for you, and then also mm-hmm. my concerns that uh, we were using large arrest operations to uh, arrest January 6th subjects who were either accused of misdemeanors, which uh, traditionally the FBI doesn't even investigate, or uh, had, or even with they were charged with felonies, had said, look, I have an attorney, I'll cooperate. And we were still right. sending SWAT to apprehend them, and I thought that, that was a risk to their safety and to our personnel. So I brought my concerns forward to my frontline supervisor, uh, and then was asked to take it to the next level and then to the next level after that. So three different levels of uh, FBI management. And at each level was told in those meetings that uh, I basically was risking my career on this and to really be sure about it. And even though I had a very good performance record, uh, that this was going to jeopardize my future. And at one point I said they told me to do soul searching. And then another when I said that I believe that I was fulfilling my oath uh, to the Constitution and uh, keeping in training with my training to to look for any potential abuses of authority i was told that my my duty was to the fbi and not to the u.s constitution so uh brought those how did that sit with you uh it was extremely disheartening it was it was pretty devastating um i explained to them even at the time that uh, i thought i was a person who was vetted who really took that old seriously and i explained to them and i know it sounds kind of silly, but uh, I do take it serious. Uh, We're coming up on July 4th. I will continue the tradition in my household. I have two young sons. We read the Declaration of Independence out loud every year on July 4th because it means that much to me uh, to be an American. And uh, I said to them almost jokingly, I said, I guess guess you guys found the one who actually believes in it. So the the way the FBI is now handling and and, uh, getting rid of whistleblowers is through the security clearance uh, suspension process, as opposed to uh, looking into what the allegations we brought forward are or concerns, um, they are immediately finding a way to suspend your security clearance. And uh, and it doesn't have to be anything related to the whistleblowing. They, they will contend it's something different, but conveniently it will happen immediately after you blow the whistle. So in my case, uh, mm-hmm. I was told that I improperly looked at the employee handbook and therefore my security clearance needed to be suspended and that matter needed to be investigated. And unfortunately, those investigations can take years. You were placed in an unpaid status, still employed by the FBI, uh, which means that you need the FBI's permission to seek outside employment while you're suspended, which I requested and was denied. Uh, They also denied me the uh, access to my training records, which I needed if I I wanted to pursue other careers. So it was uh, definitely an effort on their part to essentially starve me out and uh, deprive me of an income. They leaked my medical information to the New York Times uh, and also told the New York Times that I was accused of shooting a firearm in my backyard. The the FBI's inspection division, which is sort of like... Is that illegal, shooting firearms in your backyard? Uh, I think it might be an HOA violation in my neighborhood, but uh, ah, otherwise neighborhood. in Florida, pretty good. <laughs> but the uh, the inspection division told me uh, or sent me an email that said I was not I was prohibited from discussing this matter with my attorney and with my wife, uh, which is illegal. <laughs> and uh, wow! <laughs> so it was uh, one thing after another, and um, 
kind of eventually culminated with, uh, I was offered a, a, a job and, and, uh, the FBI denied me that ability. So I, uh, I resigned on February 15th, uh, in the morning that I, uh, spoke with the, uh, the weaponization select subcommittee, uh, in a deposition and, uh, and inform them of that decision and let them know the reasons why I was able to get that on the record. And then that's when I began working full-time as a senior fellow with the Center for Renewing America. Well, I'm glad you, you were able to find some, some employment and, and I hope you get your job back and your pension and everything else, because, you know, it's difficult for me. And I guess the rest of this audience that's, you know, across the country listening to this, to think that when you have a guy who, who does the right thing and steps up to, to do, you know, the, the heroic thing, the, the patriotic thing and say, Hey, that isn't right. And, and they try to destroy you. This is it, so uh, deflating. Right. We're, we're thinking you're the good guys. You're the cavalry. If, if you're the cavalry and, and they're doing this to you. Oh, boy, we're screwed. So wh- what's the uh, the next step for you? Uh, is there um, a massive lawsuit? Uh, what's the next step in this process for you? Uh, well, today was was a big step. Uh, just being able to air the uh, the grievances as much as I could as if I could get mm-hmm. a worded edgewise over the, uh, the Democrats uh, pontificating. Um, oh, yeah. And and I think that uh, today was uh, a pretty good moment. And, and in my conversations afterwards with uh, several of the Republican members, they said that today went well, and that they were concerned about how we would uh, comport ourselves in front of that committee, being such a hostile environment, and that if we did not uh, behave as professional as we did and, and as composed as we were, uh, they were afraid that there would not be any more hearings. And I, I think that uh, it actually went really well. And I'm I've said for a long time, I'm, I'm hoping to lay down over the barbed wire because there are a lot more whistleblowers currently in place uh, who have approached me even now on the outside and essentially laundered me information about what's going on in the FBI. And that's how I've been able to come out with more whistleblower disclosures and more public uh, statements about other issues um, and from those individuals. And, uh, and maybe they won't have to, uh, to hide in the shadows. They can feel more comfortable coming forward because whistleblower protection is, is definitely a very important aspect and should be almost a, uh, a division of, of the FBI, a, a, a core principle, because uh, mm-hmm. if you're dealing with federal law enforcement or law enforcement in general, honestly, it's the, the search for truth and then you want to keep things above board. So hopefully that that is something. And uh, I'm in my current role, uh, actually helping to advise this select committee. So in the, uh, the cruel irony on behalf of the, the FBI, they, they investigated me. So now I get to help investigate them back. Good. Uh, but when we come back, I want you to uh, just address some of the, the, the crazy things we heard today. Today, I, we heard that, that you were inappropriate because you were upset that you'd lost your job and you'd said some choice words about the FBI. They said that uh, you, you were promoting uh, not using force to arrest people that were clearly, you know, guilty of sin. And I think you alluded to that with saying they shouldn't, if people are cooperating, there's no need to use a SWAT team to go get them. And it just, it was amazing the way they contorted things. And uh, without knowing the entire story, one thing I did know was that doesn't sound right. So uh, I want to give you a chance to correct the record and address all of your critics in the time we have remaining. Folks, we're on with Stephen Friend. He's the author of True Blood, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. 
The book comes out on June 13th. Uh, it's available for pre-order now. I recommend getting two copies, one for yourself, one for a friend. And uh, he's the same guy that you saw on Capitol Hill earlier today in the weaponization of government subcommittee with uh, Chairman Jim Jordan. And I thought it was a, a really, really enlightening conversation, even with the Democrats doing what they did. Uh, really, I think, uh, exposed them to anybody who uh, was paying attention. Don't move a muscle. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Welcome back. We're on with FBI whistleblower. He was on Capitol Hill earlier today. He's with us right now, live, Stephen Friend. And he's, uh, again, the author of the book. I want to remind you about the book, True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. Uh, comes out on June 13th. Make sure you pre-order it now. This is going to sell out, and I recommend you getting two copies. Plus, you get the discounts now before they come out. Uh, Stephen Friend, uh, there was critique of you saying that you were bad-mouthing the FBI and that you were just... Uh, picking and choosing who should be arrested, why we should use SWAT, why we shouldn't set the record straight. Well, uh, as far as using SWAT and how to arrest individuals, I've always been a proponent, and I say this as somebody with five years of SWAT experience, uh, you use the least amount of force necessary to be safe and to bring somebody into custody. That's just a professionalism issue, and uh, the FBI is clearly not doing that with these January 6th subjects. It's, they're making the process the punishment for many of them. And, uh, and that was something that I objected to and uh, and wanted to get out. As far as just uh, defunding and eliminating the FBI, um, I, I think that there's this mythos around the FBI that people think that it's uh, it is vital and necessary to uh, to federal law enforcement, and I think that's just incorrect. The uh, the, the country existed before the FBI; it can exist uh, after the FBI, and, and I'm not say, suggesting we do away at all with federal law enforcement or defunding the police, I'm, I'm suggesting that we empower local police. And I think that uh, in my work in the FBI, I worked a great deal with task force officers who are local detectives from sheriff's offices and police offices, uh, and they are deputized as federal marshals, and they assist the FBI, and the FBI could not operate without their assistance because they had the expertise and the local know-how, and uh, should we contrive a way where the U.S. Marshals deputize more of these experienced detectives to address the, the state and federal issues that are in their communities. They can actually pursue federal investigations on the main street of their town, as opposed to doing the bidding of the those in, on K Street in Washington, D.C. to achieve a political victory for the powers that be. And I think that that's entirely possible. It's entirely doable. Um, and the FBI is essentially, at this point, in my, my opinion, irredeemably broken and lost. Um, I could even see a situation in the not too distant future where should anybody be charged with a crime by the FBI in their, in their area, unless it's a heavily blue left-wing area, I don't think any jury should take the FBI's word for it, as certainly this Durham report has shown, shown the FBI is prone to open up cases without any evidence. Yeah. You know, years ago, I saw a movie called White Boy Rick, and I thought, man, they're really making the FBI up really bad guys uh, but you know now here we are fast forward a million years and it's like man what they did to white boy rick they're doing to 
other FBI guys. <laughs> they do it to Donald Trump. They're doing it to everybody they want to do it to in the name of politics. And that's absolutely unacceptable. Yep, I agree with it. And uh, and it's something that uh, it crosses all party lines. Um, this was something that was raised in the early 2000s. After 9-11, there was accusations the FBI might be sort of uh, exploiting Muslim Americans and, and sort of entrapping them in these terrorism schemes and plots. And uh, while on the left, we're, we're screaming and hollering. And I think much to the chagrin uh, now, folks on the right just kind of put their head down and said, no, no, we're America and the Patriot Act is a good thing. And now that's been exposed and it's across the aisle. And I'm hoping that maybe there could be a great cross-section and uh, a desire to actually reform and defang the FBI, because regardless of who is in the occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, you shouldn't fear the FBI. And then probably the best thing we could do at this point is uh, is defang it. That way, nobody's at risk. All right, defang, not defund, right? <laughs> According to Representative Plaskett. Uh, Steve, friend, I want to thank you for being with us tonight. Let everybody know how they could follow the work that you're doing uh, with your uh, as senior fellow in the Center for Renewing America and uh, how they could follow you on social media. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm on Twitter at real Steve friend uh, on truth social at real underscore Steve friend. Uh, and I, I'm working for the Center for Renewing America, America renewing dot com. Uh, we're uh, our initiative there is to stop woke and weaponize government in any way we see, and you can see the, the work we're doing there. Uh, and again, as you, you've encouraged everybody, make sure you check out uh, True Blue, my journey from beat cop to F, suspended FBI whistleblower. Uh, and uh, buying the second copy, if you need to send one to a friend, I'm recommending everybody send a copy to the Hoover Building in Washington, D.C. as a gift Father's Day <laughs> for Christopher Ray. They could use and, it. And uh, he could maybe catch up on his reading about what's going on underneath his watch. Outstanding. Well, brother, I appreciate your work. Uh, you've got a, you've got the opportunity to come on this program anytime. We've got about six and a half million Americans that, that want to hear the truth, and we appreciate you sharing your truth tonight. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate all of them. All right. Godspeed to you, my friend. Folks, straight ahead, your calls and more. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're going to go straight to the phones, to your calls. 833-4-VALDEZ. Let's go to Nancy. She's in Ottumwa, Iowa, KBIZ. Nancy, go right ahead. Welcome. Yes, uh, I wanted to say um, I agree with this uh, law person. The thing is, when law enforcement does wrong, they should not be, de- I mean, they shouldn't be defunded because we need law officials sure. in America. I agree with that. I agree and with that 100%. Is, when, they, when they abuse people, when they are physically, mentally, sexually abusive, they need to be told to get it together or get out. And they should be arrested and prosecuted and fired and everything else that would happen to anybody else, right? Like the Democrats love to say, no one is above the law. Right, Nancy? I come under scrutiny for 20 years with law enforcement. I mean, I fought them to the hilt. What, are you and, a career criminal? 
I, I'm just a citizen, and I come under scrutiny with them because I was attacked physically, oh. sexually by a deputy sheriff in 2002. Oh. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. I hope that you're able to resolve that because um, that doesn't sound like a, a, a situation that any of us wants to be in. But we do thank you for your call. And you're right. We should not defund the police. And uh, especially coming from someone like you that, you know, while you've had a contentious relationship with law enforcement, you still agree we need law enforcement. And I, and I agree with you, Nancy. Thank you, by the way, for your call. And a big shout out to everybody listening in Ottumwa, Iowa on KBIZ. Now, before we uh, take our pause, I want to remind everybody, if you missed any of the interviews this week, go check out Rich Valdez, AmericaAtNight.com. You can listen to any of those shows. You can also sign up for the newsletter and the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to that. Both This Is America and America at Night. There's two of them. And straight ahead, we've got Alan Bakari talking about AI. You don't want to miss this. It's Rich Valdez, America at Night. From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of these social media. And uh, a couple of the headlines that are happening right now. Uh, the um, former Biden administration nuclear official, also known as the luggage thief, um, he's uh, been arrested as a fugitive from justice. We'll get to that at the top of the next hour. Uh, of course, we uh, discussed the radicalization and weaponization uh, at the FBI in today's hearings. And we also just heard from one of the whistleblowers uh, in the last hour. We're going to continue our conversation on that at the top of the next hour as well. Speaker Speaker McCarthy's uh, meeting with Biden and uh, saying the House could vote on a debt ceiling deal as early as next week. So uh, we'll keep our ears open for that one. And here's an interesting one from Yahoo. Listen to this. AI could replace 80% of jobs in the next few years. And I thought, man, that's pretty crazy. 80% of jobs. Who is this person? Um, Now, I don't know how reliable that source is. I'm looking at it now. But definitely a conversation that we want to have. And I said, you know what? Who better than one of the experts on this? And uh, you may know him from his book, Deleted, Big Tech's Battle to Erase the Trump Movement. Uh, Alan Bokari is the uh, senior tech writer at Breitbart News. Alan Bokari, welcome to the program. Rich, hello. How's it going? How are you, my brother? Thank you, man. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for staying up late to be on the program. Of course. So I want to dig into this. I know you've got a couple of really good articles out, by the way. Uh, Anybody who's not following Alan, make sure you do. He's got some really good stuff. Uh, I want to start off with um, the one uh, titled... 
media fears rise over AI-powered manipulation in 2024. Now, we're, we're seeing all sorts of things happening right now because uh, AI seems to be, you know, every day there's a, a slew of AI stories. Uh, but when it comes to elections, it's it's kind of uh, untested, or at least for many of us, we, we haven't seen it before, or have we? Oh, we haven't, no. Uh, you know, the GOP is actually ahead on this. They came out with an AI-generated ad uh, last uh, last month, I believe it was, or earlier this month. And, you know, that led to some uh, consternation in the liberal media about the potential of uh, AI and its use in political campaigns. Um, interestingly, the, the same uh, media outlets were totally fine when uh, pranksters were using AI to... Uh, to generate images of Republican politicians in uh, in drag, but um, <laughs> uh, that that yeah, that's the thing that ha- that uh, that happened. You can look it up. I believe NBC did an article about it. Um, but yeah, we we're going to see uh, more and more use of AI in political campaigning. Uh, I tell you what, I'm less interested in AI generated ads. I think that's just going to be a, a normal thing. We'll see AI generated ads for all sorts of things. You know, products. Uh, you know, services, uh, you know, there'll be all, there'll be all sorts of AI generated ads in every field. And yeah, I think that will just become a normal part of the background. But what will really be, uh, be interesting to see how the social media companies will respond to this is, you know, AI generated versions of uh, politicians indistinguishable from the, uh, from the real thing, you know, saying potentially campaign killing things, you know, how you will believe that. Uh, that is a legitimate problem, but uh, we've seen in the past, uh, you know, when there's been concern about disinformation and fake news, the social media companies have ended up only enforcing uh, enforcing policies against that sort of thing one way. We, we have fake news from the mainstream media and left-leaning sources effectively ignored, and you've had uh, true stories from the conservative media being shut down and censored on the basis mm-hmm. of these rules. So I think, you know, deep-faked videos and audio clips of politicians and the political leaders could be a big problem, but the social media companies, the real test is are the social media companies going to address that problem in a fair and even-handed way? Well, you know, Alan Bukhari, it seems to me that they typically follow suit on whatever they're told to do by the quote-unquote fact-checkers, right? The, the AP or the PolitiFact or whatever. And it's it. I saw a, a very funny, in my opinion, it was very funny. It was Joe Biden making comments about I forget what, but he, he, he it sounded like something you'd probably hear, you know, uh, a a, uh, a conservative influencer say rather than Joe Biden. But it was very funny to hear it coming from Joe Biden. And I thought this is great. I sent it to a few of my friends. and I said, you know what? I think I'm going to play this on the radio, the audio of it. And when I went to grab it, it was gone. They had removed it from Instagram. It was, you know, you couldn't see it. The next thing you know, a few days later, uh, the company I work for, they said, you know what? Uh, We're not going to be playing any AI generated stuff of any politicians because people might think it's real, even if you say it's satire and whatnot. So uh, it's clearly um, growing and in, you know, it's becoming more ubiquitous. What are some of the um, dangers that you see coming down the road? Well, I mean, the, the biggest danger, I think, is that I'm, I'm sure social media companies can uh, can develop the tools, uh, you know, needed to label deep fakes and sen- even censor deep fakes if they have to. The, the, the problem, as I was saying, is if they allow 
um, allow one side to do it, but don't allow the other side to do it. That right. that that could be really damaging because you can imagine, you know, a, a deep fake version of Donald Trump saying things that would, you know, annoy his conservative base and, you know, undermine his chances in the primary. You know, like saying, you know, oh yes, actually, you know, uh, what, what would annoy Republican voters? Like, imagine a deep fake of Donald Trump saying, yes, actually, transgender surgeries for. Uh, Preteen is okay. I support that. Like imagine right. that. Imagine how many Republican votes would be turned off by that. That could have a huge impact in the Republican primary. Right. So it is that's real a, voter a, suppression a real problem. Hundred percent right. Now, if we um, don't self-police this, I think eventually this ends up where people are begging to have AI regulated by by the government, and I guess that's already uh, something that's coming down the pipe. Uh, but what do you think ends up happening? Is this remain like crypto where it's kind of just, uh, you know, still the Wild West or does Congress quickly rein in on AI? I think there will be a lot of pressure to quickly rein in on AI. And we already saw this week there was a hearing. Sam Altman testified. He's the CEO of OpenAI. They created a uh, chat GPT which uh, is, the, is the program that really kicks off all of this, uh, this AI buzz that we've been seeing with the, you know, very, very effective uh, AI chatbot. Um, and, yeah, and, you know, Altman is saying, well, we need, we need AI regulation, uh, you know, which is obviously, we've seen this before. We've seen Facebook say, oh, yeah, we need, we need regulation. It's always very convenient for the, the market leader to be involving themselves in the regulation of their own industry. Um, but I'll tell you what'll what'll hold what'll hold it up and what could throw a wrench into the works. This is exactly what happened with uh, with tech regulation more broadly. It's uh, it's partisan concerns, and you know we I, I did an article for Breitbart uh, a, a couple of weeks ago I think about the FTC's uh, efforts to regulate AI. They put out a big statement saying they're going to regulate AI. They appointed uh, the white the uh, the White House appointed Kamala Harris the. Uh, their AI SAR to oversee some of these efforts. But uh, you dig into what the FTC is saying, uh, you know, with their Biden appointees, they're relying on uh, on left-wing social science. They're specifically relying on this, uh, this field called machine learning fairness, uh, which I've talked about before. I've written about it for Breitbart. Machine learning fairness is effectively a uh, an effort to merge the fields of, you know, critical race theory and gender studies and essentially left-wing social science with uh, with the study of machine learning and the study of AI. And the goal, which they all state, is to like make sure that AI doesn't come to conclusions, don't start to analyze data that would challenge left-wing narratives, which could be very easily done. Like you imagine the AI generating, uh, you know, analyzing crime data, for example, it would quickly come to conclusions that would, uh, that would horrify the left, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what they want to stop AI from doing. And this is what the FTC is focusing on instead of broader concerns that affect everyone. So um, this is what I see is going to happen with the uh, with the attempts to regulate AI. It's going to get stuck in partisan gridlock. There'll be no focus on national concerns, no focus on like the, the problems of AI that affect everyone. And still will be this narrow focus on very partisan concerns uh, that really shouldn't be focused on at all, really. Right. So ultimately, as much as they want to try to regulate it, it seems they probably won't get anywhere. And let me just remind everybody, we're on with Alan Bakari. He's the senior tech writer for Breitbart. And uh, he's also the guy that wrote the book on media censorship, hashtag deleted. 
big tech's battle to erase the Trump movement and steal the election. And I just want to put a caveat out there. This book came out in September of 2020. So talk about being prescient. Alan Bakari is that guy. Uh, and he's with us for another segment. When we come back, Alan, I want to talk about your uh, your piece on how AI was at the top of the very secretive agenda at the Bilderberg meeting. So stick around with us if you can. And folks, if you want to call us and you have a question and we can get it in, we will. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Too often, we have seen what happens when technology outpaces regulation. The unbridled exploitation of personal data, the proliferation of disinformation, and the deepening of societal inequalities. We have seen how algorithmic biases can perpetuate discrimination and prejudice and how the lack of transparency can undermine public trust. This is not the future we want. If you were listening from home, you might have thought that voice was mine and the words from me. But in fact, that voice was not mine. The words were not mine. And the audio was an AI voice cloning software trained on my floor speeches. The remarks were written by Chat GPT. All right. Now, what was not written by Chat GPT? Of course, that's Senator Richard Blumenthal at a hearing earlier this week, and that was what was on the agenda. Now, uh, I'm pretty sure he one day will say, "Look, I didn't say I was in Vietnam. I'm not really Dan and Dick. No, actually, it was Chat GPT that said that. But no, that's on him." But it doesn't change the fact that that's what was on the agenda earlier this week on Capitol Hill. And now it seems to be that AI is again on the agenda at the uh, secretive Bilderberg group meeting. And Alan Bakari is with us, senior tech writer from Breitbart News. Alan, tell us all about it. Uh, before I get to the Bilderberg thing, you make a great point there, which I want to highlight. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not just that uh, AI can clone a politician's voice or create a convincing image of them, but also imagine if a, a politician or some other public leader is actually caught in a uh, in, in some sort of compromised situation as an undercover journalist recording them accepting a bribe or something like that. What's to stop them turning around and saying, hey, that was just a deep fake? And you know, people right. people would believe that. That would be a plausible explanation. Um That's the future. But yeah. That that uh, you know, there are all sorts of problems which, you know, very interesting and we should we should all be thinking about. Um but yes, the Bilderberg group, uh mm-hmm. of course, uh uh, meeting of over a hundred leaders from uh, Europe and uh, and, uh, and North America, all globalist elite types. Uh, a few journalists there, all from establishment publications: The Economist, The Financial Times, and Applebaum is there, of course, the most establishment journalist you can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, AI, AI is one of the things they're uh, they're talking about because you know it, sh- it it shows the recognition on the part of global elites that this is the next. 
the next big disruptor in the field of Congress is going to it's going to change almost every uh, every industry. It's going to change political campaigns. It's going to change a lot of things. We obviously won't know what exactly is being discussed there because uh, Bilderberg, of course, infamously entirely behind closed doors. Everyone's bound by Chatham House rules. They can't speak about what's uh, what's being discussed there. Um, there are a few conservatives in attendance. I was surprised to see uh, Peter Thiel, the uh, the one of the few people in in Silicon Valley, who's openly conservative, yeah. is is attending. So, uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, maybe uh, you know, if you're friends with Peter Thiel, you might uh, be able to find out what's going on there. But other than that, we just know that the Bilderberg Group is discussing this, uh, which kind of tells you a lot just just uh, just by knowing that it. It shows you what uh, what the elites are thinking about. Fascinating, and you're you're right. We never know what's going on. Uh, but it, it, it's equally as fascinating that this is uh, part of the agenda. And I guess it makes sense. It's part of my agenda tonight. It's, it's going on in the world, and we should be talking about it and learning about it. But I find it so interesting that we're, we're now, you know, it used to be rhetorical, right? We, we used to have this uh, idealism where people were creating their own truths uh, in their rhetoric. Now you can create your own truth in 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 a deep fake right if you want trump to say this you can get trump saying that you want biden to say this you can get biden saying that and, and i just find it uh amazing that we're it's it's a novelty and it'll be pitched as such on on snapchat my daughter the other day she's 17 and she tells me all my friends are using chat gpt on snapchat and she said I, i'm not messing with that i don't like it <laughs> but i just thought to myself <laughs> wow kids who are used to you know chatting and doing what they do on Snapchat. Um, now they're using chat GPT and it, and it, it alerts the other person that, you know, chat GPT is involved in this communication or whatever, but it's just fascinating to me that we went from talking on the phone to texting on the phone to now not even texting on the phone with, with all of this interesting features and, and we're doing it with our politics and our news and information. And I, I just can't imagine, uh, what, these global elites in um, at the Bilderberg meeting are are gonna discuss. Do you have any inclination uh, on what how the, the the direction of the conversation is gonna go? Yeah, sadly, my sources don't extend to uh, what's going on at the Bilderberg uh, group uh, just yet. Uh, they have yeah, only <laughs> just started the meet the meeting. Well, uh, the meeting will started today. It's going to continue until the weekend. Um, yeah, who, who knows what they're discussing? But you know, be, be, you know, you make a good point about Snapchat. Beyond the realm of elites, there's all sorts of you know changes that are going to happen at you know at at, uh, at uh, lower levels as well. You know, I, I saw a uh, a chat GPT application where you could train it to respond to your your girlfriend if you're busy. <laughs> that's one that's one application <laughs> of uh, chat GPT. And you know, it's not all doom and gloom. One one application right. it may save some marriages. <laughs> exactly, you know the the, the yes dear chatbot, um, but you know it's not it's not all uh, doom and gloom. You know, what one uh, potential application? It's, I think it's going to make the production of uh, movies and video games and all these things that are normally tend to be mm -hmm. quite high budget and beyond the reach of ordinary people. It's going to make it much much easier as you know image generation and video generation uh, becomes more uh, advanced. Anyone can you know start making movies that look like big budget Hollywood blockbusters, which I think will be great. I think Hollywood needs that kind of disruption. Um, right. Yeah, we're, we're seeing right now. 
you know, we're seeing right now on social media yet another, uh, they're dragging Harrison Ford out of uh, retirement to make another Indiana Jones sequel. <laughs> and, you know, just just right. regurgitating all these old, uh, all these old franchises because they have no original ideas. Um, Alan Bacari, before we uh, run out of time, I want to make sure everybody knows how to find you and how to follow you. Let everybody know. Uh, yes, uh, check out my writing at brightbark.com. I'm doing more on AI, and you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Alan Bakari. And if you want to read my book, it's uh, deletedbook.com, or you can search right. it on Amazon. Perfect. Thanks for joining us tonight, brother. More to come straight ahead. We're going to join uh, Jose Ramon telling us why it's important to pursue your passions. Don't go anywhere. Thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez with you. And again, at the top of the next hour, it's Open Phone America, final hour, third hour of the program. We welcome you to join the conversation, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And uh, we're going to be kicking off Open Phone America at the top of the hour. But right now, I want to uh, kind of focus our attention on a lot, right? Right now, so many people are graduating. People are following their dreams. Everybody's happy. But we all know life doesn't always work out that way until you decide that it does. And uh, recently, I uh, reconnected with somebody I hadn't seen in a long time, very successful entrepreneur uh, who started a uh, precision solar film company and did very well with that and had gotten into writing books and let me know that he was on his second book. And it was really fascinating because, uh, you know, we talked about the first book. Then I saw the cover for the second book, and that book comes out today, and it's called Live Your Effing Story. It's your life. Do what you love. There's no plan B for what makes you happy, brings you joy, and fulfills your soul. And I thought, man, those are some pretty true words right there, and they're so reminiscent to my journey in radio in many ways. You know, I, I had a career in government as a a government administrator, if you will, and, and as a college administrator, and I, I had small business prior to this. And so many things were okay, but I wasn't really living my dream because I, I thought I was just doing good enough. And it wasn't until I realized, you know, you got to go for broke. And it's when you go for broke that you really, you, you come alive inside. And I realized not everybody can do it because I didn't do it for most of my life, but it's a real thing. And the author of this book, Jose Ramon Eguas, is uh, is an amazing guy, and he's with us right now. Jose Ramon, welcome. Hey, how you doing, Rich? I'm doing great, brother. So I wanna I wanna dig into this, and I wanna start with a little bit of a story, and it's really the story of you. Before we get into the book and what the book is about and what inspired okay. the book, I want you to tell the audience, you know, how you came about, you know, where you grew up what it was like growing up quickly though. You know, it's only a three hour show, right? And you don't get all three hours, but <laughs> okay. uh, give us a little background on who you are, what you did, how you started, what you started and, you know, and bring us to present day. Sure. Well, I'm a North Burton kid in New Jersey 
And um, back in uh, 1987, I moved to Florida with my mom and my sister. And uh, it's not something that I really wanted to do, but, uh, you know, I was a junior in high school, so I had to do what mommy said. So we went out to Florida, and um, I worked for a gentleman. Uh, the name of the company was called The Touch of Tint, and his name was Brad. And I, I, he, what he did, he had a window tinting company, and this was in Florida, in Florida, Dell. And uh, I worked for him for a little bit. And I, was, I lasted, I think, three months with him, and me and him didn't, we didn't uh, get along very well. And um, I, I was brutal at what I did. I, I'm not artistic. I, 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 you know, my, my, my handwriting is scribbling, scrabbling. And when, when I was working for him, I, he said something to me after, like, the third month. He's like, hey, listen. And he was dating my cousin at the time. And he said, um, you know, you... You make you cost me more money than you make me, and I was like, "Ooh, that, that was that was a tough <laughs> one. To, that was a tough pill to swallow." But it was the truth, you know. I'm not artistic, and I get it. So I end up quitting, and I I I, got, I became a busboy for a little bit, and then I told my mom, "Listen, I'm going back to Jersey." And I'm back in the, in the ending of '87, uh, going into '88 of January, I came back to Jersey, and um, I said, "You know what? I'm going to try this window tinting thing." And uh, and I it was you know it snows up here. It's not like Florida. And I did it in the street, and the first car I ever did was in my best friend's garage in a, by a guy's car by the name of Tony Capote. I did his car for the first car I ever did. It was freezing in there. It was one light bulb, and it was, like, brutal. But, I mean, everybody was like, yo, it came out pretty good. I was like, you know, I can do this. And that's, that's where it started for me in my mind. In my mind, I was the best, even though at that moment I was not. But I, I applied the laws of believing, which I didn't even know existed. I, just, I, I visioned myself that I was the best. And that same year, I was still in high school. I was going to graduate. And I opened up my business. And I opened it up with, I could, like around May, I opened it up with my brother-in-law. And it lasted about three months. It, it, didn't, it, didn't take, it didn't go anywhere. So we closed it. And then I said to myself, I'm, I know I can do this. You know, I, I can do this. But I'm going to go in it myself. And in that November... Um, I opened up my, my, my window film company, which is still today, 35 years later, and I, I opened it up, and it, it, was, it was brutal. I was not good, you know, what, what I did. And, but in my mind, I was going to be the best. And one day, some, some dude, he's 6'4", with long hair, comes into my shop. He knocks on the door, and I opened it up, and he's dragging a suitcase. I thought he was going to sell me something. And, uh, and, and I was struggling. I was barely making the rent and, and paying the phone bill. Back then, there was no Google. There was no internet. It didn't exist in, back in 1988. And um, he's like, hey, my name is Mark. And, and I just so happened to be tinting a car. I was tinting a Ford Probe. And I had to do, uh, I still had to finish the two front doors. And we were talking. He told me what he did. And, and he came from Sarasota. And he was only here for a year because he met his wife in the Bahamas. And she had to get a transfer from the airlines. And he's like, I'm stuck here for a year. He goes, would you mind if I do those two front doors for you? I'm like, sure. So he did it. And when he tinted uh, these two front doors, I, th that's the level that I, I am today. I was like, this guy came from Mars, space. What the? And I was like. He was amazing at it. Yeah, no, it, unbelievable. So I said, he said to me, I'll make you a deal. I'll, I'll teach you what I know. Let me stay here for a year. We'll split the profits. But you're going to have a skill that you can never repay me because you can make money for the rest of your life. And, and, and to this day, we're good friends, and it's the true statement that he said. And, you know, and I, it, um, I had a part-time job with FedEx because I, I, I was getting married the following year. So I got a second sure. job, and it was a full-time job at nighttime. And he said something to me. And we're going to get, because in the, in the next, in my book here that we're going to talk about tonight, I do talk about uh, the power of decision. And he, I made, to this, I am where I am today for the decision I made that day. 
And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, Jose, you've got to make a decision. Either you do FedEx all the way or you do the wonderful uh, industry all the way. You have to pick one. You, you, you're, you're all over the place. And that day I quit FedEx. I mean, I'm not saying FedEx is a great job, but it wasn't for me. I didn't love it. So what I really heard, Rich, this is what I really heard. What I heard was, yo, Jose, you don't love what you're doing over there. You have no passion for it. You bite your tongue when you go. You're upset all the time about it. This is what you love. This is your passion. Do what you love. And I made that decision. And it wasn't an easy one because if you looked at it from the five senses, man, this, this is security job. You got benefits. You, the stocks, long term. Right. And, and this film, there was nothing going on. I barely made the rent. But I took the leap of faith. I believed that it can happen. I applied the laws of believing. And where I am today. All right. Well, let's pause right there. Uh, I want to hear more about the laws of believing and all the other rules and laws, as you put them in your book, that you've learned along the way, because I think uh, there's a lot of people listening right now that are entrepreneurs, small business owners, and they're thinking to themselves, I've been in the same spot. I've also had a business where I wasn't making any money, barely making the rent, not believing in myself, being told I wasn't good at something. And, um, you know, they need that nudge. They need to hear that that nugget of wisdom, that 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 pearl of inspiration that uh, you might have for them that might really say, you know what, this is your chance. This is your time. Folks, we're on with uh, Jose Ramon. He is um, the owner of uh, this window tinting film film company. Uh, is it Precision or Professional? Give me the name it one more time. Protective Protective Solar protective. Films. There you go. Protective solar films. And he uh, also has written the book, Live Your Effing Story. And uh, it's a really good book. I actually just picked up a copy of it. I recommend that you do the same. Uh, it's uh, available on Amazon. Just look it up under Jose Ramon. We're coming back with him to learn about the different laws and rules that he learned along the way. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Rich Valdez, who again will do a fine job, and I know you'll enjoy listening to it. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Jose Ramon. He's the author of the book, Live Your Effing Life. And uh, Jose Ramon, you were telling us about the, the lessons you learned, and in your book, you list them as different laws. Tell us about it. Yeah, my first book, I'm Possible, uh, it basically talks about the laws of attraction, or if you want to call it the laws of believing, uh, there's different names for it. And it's really important for us to understand that through our thoughts, we have the power to purposely change our reality into a limitless life. And what's really important to understand, you don't, we don't get what we want, we get what we are. You have to become that person in your mind that it's already happened. And those are the laws that I, I applied in my life that I didn't even know I was applying. And I was seeing the results. And in my previous book, I'm Possible, I talk about all that. I talk about the laws of attractions, how they work. And I know there's a lot of books out there, but this book is a simple read. It's powerful and, and it's impacting. And it has a lot of great gems in there that can, you can walk away with. What I like about it is that uh, I, I've seen your business grow. And, and I think it's remarkable because... It's something so simple, right? You, you have this, this uh, uh, solar film company that most people, 
you know, we don't realize the, the ins and outs of what that business consists of. But to me, what the beauty of it and the simplicity of it is that it doesn't really matter what your business is, right? It, it, everybody has something that they're doing in life. And right. at some point they have to deal with something else and there's adversity and there's, uh, you know, this, this moment where you go big or go home and you have to make that choice. And some people never make that choice. And, you know, uh, if I could steal like a second of your time, I'm going to tell you a story about my own kid, right? Who, uh, as much as I've done this my whole life, right? I rolled the dice when I was younger, you know, coming out of high school with opening my own barbershop and, and running that business and opening another business after that. And, and I loved it. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, addictive to me to, to be an entrepreneur. Uh, but when my kid tells me, you know, she wants to get into fashion design, I'm like, no, 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 you should be a school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> they have a pension. It's very safe. You're going to love it. And she, she took my advice and started going to college for the first three years to pursue uh, teaching because she loves kids and she does love being around kids. But one day she comes to me and she says, you know, dad, I feel empty with this. I don't feel alive like I do when I'm sewing and I'm creating and I'm designing clothes. And, you know, and she's like, I look at you and your story with your barbershop, or even when you really took the leap of faith to get into broadcasting and you, you you went for broke. You gave it everything you had. And she said, that's what I want to do with fashion. And I was like, oh, why? <laughs> why? But I want her to fulfill her purpose and passion and, and be alive on the inside, right? I also, just as a dad, I want her to have uh, the, the safety and security of, of, of that teaching job. And, of course. And I think that's where so many people are, people that are listening to you right now, uh, listening to this program. Many of them, you know, it, being an entrepreneur isn't for everybody, and I get that. But what what was it uh, for you um, that that made you realize not only can I do this, or like like you said, I am possible, uh, but what made you realize that you could succeed in it and succeed in the long term? Well, I mean, if we, I talk about it actually in the, in the first book, I do talk about it in the introduction where, where all those thoughts came to me. I remember going back, I'm talking 1984, um, I was in Florida with my cousin and my aunt, and we were watching the 1984 Olympics, and then the gymnastics were on, I'll never forget this, actually it's in the book, and uh, I remember, I, I had this thought, I was, I think I was like 14 years old, and I, and I said it out loud, I said, man, I would like to be a gymnast, and then I said, oh, I can't, these kids started when they were like, you know, four years old, who knows, and my cousin, out of nowhere, she looked at me straight in the face with the straightest face. I don't know where she said, you could be anything and do anything you want in your life. And that she planted this. She didn't even know it. She planted a seed. I didn't even know it. She planted a seed of believing in my mind. And another time was back in, in 1987, I was a Valley Parker before I went to Florida. And um, early 87, I worked for, uh, in Fort Lee, a place called the Palace Stadium. I don't even know if they're still around. But anyway, uh, it's a kind of a wealthy place. People with money will go there. And I went to the bathroom. I had my jumpsuit on, and I'm washing my hands after I, I went to the restroom. And there was a gentleman there in a suit. And um, we had, we both, he started a conversation with me. And he was well-dressed, older man, maybe in his 50s. And he just, we were talking, and he said something to me. He said, never let anybody tell you you can't do anything. You could do anything. Anything is possible. And he was telling me, when someone tells me they can't build this, build this structure, I, 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 with my three-piece suit, I get in the mud, and I show them it could be done. Anything could be done. And those little steps of seed, and then when, the, when I went to Florida and I started getting into the tinting, when I came over here, all those seeds were planted, and it, it just, I just believe I could do anything. There's nothing impossible to me. When did you realize there was no plan B? 
That, you know what? That's it. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, in my book now, Living Your Effing Story, there is a chapter that, that, that talks about it. Literally, the, the chapter is um, Effing Plan B. There is no plan B. And in my personal life, I've never had a plan B. I give it all I got. If I have to adjust, if, if I, if it, I had many failures. I literally fall on my face, but I didn't quit. There is no plan for me. There was no bridge behind me. If I said I was going to do something, I'm going to do it. I don't, I don't care what it takes. It, it's a done. It was a decision I made. I, 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 didn't make a, I didn't make an emotion decision. I made a decision. It wasn't based on emotions. This is going to get done no matter what. And when it comes to plan B, there is no plan B. And, and, and if you really think about it, if plan A is what I love to do, right? That's my plan. I, I, I love this. This is what I have vision for myself. And plan B is just for a backup, but I don't love plan B. So why is it even in my plans? This should, it shouldn't even be in my plans. I don't even love it. So just like back in the day, a couple hundred years ago, the military, they will go to conquer. They will burn the boat or they run over a bridge. They will burn the bridge. There was they no turning back. There's no turning back. And, and when people make a plan B, you're, you're, you're setting up for failure in my eyes, you know. And Arnold Schwarzenegger said it best. He's never had a plan B. And if you look at his life, I mean, the man did great things, like, not, just, not just in the movie industry and everything, from being a politician to, you know, he's done things that I, 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 I'm in awe. I'm in awe. And he yeah. said, I never had a plan B. Never. Yeah, he's and literally so, Conan and the Terminator at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jose Ramon, but, hang on one second. We're going to come right back to you. Folks, we're on with Jose Ramon, and we're discussing his book. And when we come back, you're going to tell everybody why they need to get a copy of the book and what the best uh, pearl of wisdom they could get out of this book is going to be. The book is Live Your Effing Story. Of course, that's a, a bleeped out version of the uh, title, and it's your life. Do what you love. There is no plan B for what makes you happy, brings you joy, and fulfills your soul. Don't move a muscle. Check out the book on Amazon. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Remember, uh, we are just moments away from Open Phone America, so you could get those calls coming in right now. We've got a lot to discuss on the table. We're taking calls on every topic and every guest that we've had tonight, and hour number three is always one of my favorites because we get to speak together like a big town hall meeting. But I want to wrap up with our buddy, Jose Ramon. And uh, he's the author of Live Your Effing Life. I recommend that you go to the website, go to Amazon, pick up a copy, pick up two copies, honestly, one for yourself, one to give away to someone else. It's an inspiring book that's an easy read that I think will really uh, appeal to people. But rather than me make that appeal, we're going to let Jose make that appeal. Jose, go for it. All right. So um, you ever heard of the term live your dash? I haven't, but we got a minute and a half, so make it count. Okay, so to live your dash, everybody has a, uh, a day they're born and everybody has a day they pass away on a tombstone. It's that mm. dash that's what's important. Wow. That's the dash that is your story, is, is where life matters. 
is where we can have the opportunity to do what we love. Why would we waste a day doing things that we don't love? Life is short. Life is beautiful. You know, people, do it, people don't do what they love because they're afraid or, or, or what their naysayers or what their mom or their dad or their kids or their best friend. You got to black all that out. Whatever you love, if, if it's whatever it is, and I'm not just talking about financial, I'm talking about everything in life. If you want to play chess, if you want to go to the park, you want to spend time more with your kids, uh, you know, spend time with your mom, your dad, do what makes you happy, do what you love. That's, that's extremely important. So, but really quick, I wanted to go back to what you said before when you were talking about your, your, your child. Mm-hmm. And I have a statement in my book, and look at this statement one of the most powerful ways for us to be liberated from any type of animosity is to effing live our lives doing what we love. Outstanding. Folks, follow him at official Jose Ramon on Instagram. Get two copies of the book, Live Your Effing Story. Jose, thanks for being with us, my brother. Thanks for having me on your show. You bet, brother. God bless and thank you. Open Phone America is coming up right now. Don't miss it. the city that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. That's Valdez with an S on all the social media, at Rich Valdez with an S. And uh, happy to be here. It's our Thursday edition, and the phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4VALDEZ. Now, uh, today, very contentious testimony on Capitol Hill, where FBI whistleblowers were telling their story as to what happened, how they were retaliated against for asking questions uh, about investigations that they felt were inappropriate or being politicized. And the the sparks were flying. We'll get to some of that audio momentarily. That I, I want to play for you. Uh, but we had one of the whistleblowers who uh, was in Capitol Hill today uh, testifying before the subcommittee on the weaponization of government and joined us this evening on our program, uh, Stephen Friend was with us, and we have a clip of that. Listen to this. I've said for a long time, I'm, I'm hoping to lay down over the barbed wire because there are a lot more whistleblowers currently in place uh, who have approached me even now on the outside and essentially laundered me information about what's going on in the FBI. And that's how I've been able to come out with more whistleblower disclosures and more public uh, statements about other issues um, and from those individuals, and, uh, and maybe they won't have to uh, to hide in the shadows. They can feel more comfortable coming forward. Uh, that was Stephen Friend discussing how he's continued to work with other FBI agents who want to come forward with their disclosures as whistleblowers. And it was a very uh, illuminating interview, in my opinion. I recommend if you did not get a chance to hear it, you check it out on our website, richvaldezamericaatnight.com. You can sign up for the podcast there. You can replay the episode there probably in about an hour and a half from now once we wrap up this program. 
And if you um, are subscribed to the podcast, you'll always get an alert every time there's a new episode. Uh, Rich Valdez, AmericaAtNight.com. I highly recommend it. Now, I want to talk about some of the other things that we got into because we also talked about the dangers of AI with our buddy Alan Bukhari and uh, the importance of living your your life and you know, making your story your own with Jose Ramon. But there's a story that I neglected the other day. And, you know, uh, to be very frank here, full disclosure, I typically skip the stories that involve the royals, like Harry and Meghan, or uh, what are the names of these two? Is that Harry and Meghan? Okay, because I know there's another two. Uh, what's the other two's name? William and Kate, right? They're the fancier two. So Harry and Meghan <clears throat> apparently got into a, uh, a, a, a chase, paparazzi was chasing them around New York city and Eric Adams weighed in all sorts. It was all sorts of stupidity in my opinion. So I kind of ignored it, but it, it was, it was a big story a few days back. And, uh, today, uh, there's a report now that Harry and Megan demanded that the photo agency give them the footage of the chase. And the agency fired back at them saying, hello, uh, you must need a lesson in American history. We don't play by the king's rules. And I thought that was very rich. <laughs> now, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are trying to put the squeeze on this photo agency that claimed that their freelance paparazzi who followed the couple on Tuesday night uh, were were not as uh, Harry and Meghan claimed uh, aggressive and didn't cause a near collision. Harry and Meghan's legal team fired a letter to Backgrid Photo claiming that, in part, that they needed the agency's footage of the chase to shore up their own security, adding that we hereby demand that Backgrid immediately provide us with copies of all photos, videos, and films taken last night by your freelance photographers. After Harry and Meghan had left their event, and they were pursued by these people over several hours. So, um, fascinating stuff here, really is. So, uh, Backgrid's lawyer has rejected the uh, demand, saying in a letter, in America, as I'm sure you know, property belongs to the owner of it. Third parties cannot just demand it be given to them, as perhaps kings can do. Perhaps you should sit down with your client and advise them that his English rules of royal uh, prerogative to demand that the citizenry hand over their property to the crown were rejected by this country Long ago, we stand by our founding fathers. I love that. I applaud that. I'm, you know, I'm doing slow clap. I'm standing up in my chair right now because I, this is literally what America is all about, right? It literally is not paparazzi and car chases, but standing by the founding fathers. And I love that story. Now, speaking of cars, and we're going to get to your calls, by the way. Um, I see that there are some calls coming in right now. We're going to get to you momentarily, but I wanted to take a moment uh, to um, to share about, uh, and this is something I'll ask, right? I want to know if I'm being unreasonable. You know, I recently um, uh, bought a pre-owned car. I really liked it. Nice car. The salesman was very nice. They gave me a temporary plate leaving the place, and they said, you know, and then they sat me down in a little room, which I didn't like. This is the part I didn't like. They sat me down in a little room, and they said, all right, this is, uh, I don't know. I ended, I, th I feel like I paid $500 for registration. I've never paid $500 for registration in my life. And I couldn't understand why I was paying $295 over here, $175 there. And I kept asking the guy. I was like, hold on a second. So you mean to tell me 
that's how much it costs to do what? Because when I go to motor vehicles, it's, I don't know, 70 bucks, 150 at most. It's, it's never $500. He said, no, well, there's a fee. They charge a fee to do the document. We use a third-party service that will transfer your existing plates on your current car over to this car, but we're also going to issue you a temporary in-transit plate so that you can take the car from the dealership to your house. And that'll be good for 30 days, this temporary plate. And again, I've done that in the past. This is, I, I think, my 22nd car that I've owned in my life. And um, I like cars. So I, I think to myself, okay, look, I'm not going to split hairs here and, and, and cry. I just didn't like paying $500 for registration fees. And, uh, and I was in this little room for 25 minutes or so. Then they tried to sell me all sorts of extra extended warranties and blah, blah, blah. But that was all fine. I was part of the game. Okay, granted, right? It's not like I was going to use the car to go chase Harry and Meghan. But I did think it was a little expensive. <clears throat> so about a week ago, I get a text message uh, from, from one of the, the women that works there and says, oh, we're, we're processing your paperwork, but your social security number is not on it. Now I'm thinking, I filled out a million papers in this place. Right. Uh, they should have every piece of information they need. So I said, you know, to be on the safe side, I said, you know what? Give me your number and I'll call you this way. I don't have to put it through text messaging. So I just found that to be a little, you know, unprofessional as it was. But I call and they're like whatever. I tell her the number. She's like, OK, well, she's like, you know, we texted you on Friday and you didn't get it back to us till Monday. So it's, it's going to put a delay on on the, the pl plates being issued. And I said, fine. It is what it is. Right. However, my plate is going to be expiring in, I don't know, 25 hours or something like that. So now I don't see how this is my fault in any way that I have to drive around with this expired plate, but they're going to take till next week to deliver the new plates. So I told them, listen, I really don't, if it takes you longer and you took forever to call me or you didn't have the information you needed when you put me in that little room and asked me for all this info and charged me 500 bucks for this paperwork that you clearly didn't do right. Um, just send me another thing in the mail, FedEx it to me, overnight it to me, so I have this plate so I could, you know, drive around and not be a criminal, right? I don't want to be a delinquent driving around with this expired plate. And they're, they're upset with me for wanting them to do the right thing. So I want to know from you, and, you know, you don't have to weigh in on this, but if, if you do, I'm really curious to know, am I being unreasonable? Or should I just drive around with this expired plate and think that, you know, they're in charge of everything and, you know, I thought I was supposed to get the service here and I don't feel like I'm getting any service. I thought it was a very disappointing response. I told them, I said, this is very disappointing. They said, well, we're sorry for the inconvenience. If you get a ticket, we'll pay for it. So hold on. I'm supposed to get pulled over, be embarrassed, have paparazzi taking pictures of me like Harry and Meghan. Just kidding. But uh, I'm supposed to go through all of that to then say, oh, yeah, I got a ticket. And here it is. You go ahead and pay for it. Is that the most unprofessional thing you've ever heard? Let me know what you think. I don't want to put the name of the dealership out there just yet, but it is in uh, Long Island, New York. And uh, I'm not afraid to put it out there. I just, I want to be fair. And I don't want to send them business. I also don't want to trash them, but I want to tell the truth and give an honest review. So um, you let me know what your thoughts are. And if you've had any instances where your temporary plate ran out and did the dealer give you a hard time about getting a new one? Because I, I, it's never happened to me before. Anyway. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about following your dreams and and uh, your thoughts on um, the book by Jose Ramon. And more importantly, that idea of following your passions and, and doing what you got to do, doing what you love. So more to come straight ahead. Your calls and more. Don't go anywhere. 
This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. We're going to your calls right now. Now, I just wanted to share something with you. So this, um, there's an article in The Hill that says Hyundai and Kia now agree to pay $200 million to settle a lawsuit after a rise in auto thefts. And I thought, why would they, the automaker, have to pay because people's cars got stolen? Well, it turns out uh, they were sued because they said that they had failed to make the car um, safe with respect to anti-theft. And uh, they lost that lawsuit, or they made a settlement, and they're agreeing to pay $200 million to settle this lawsuit after these cars have been stolen all over the place. And uh, cities were giving out the club, and they were doing all sorts of things to stop these car thefts from happening. So we'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. Um, and, of course, I still want your opinions. This is my Dear Richie segment without the harps uh, because <laughs> I really want to know, should the dealer just have forked over another 50 bucks to overnight me a new temporary plate and not giving me a hard time about it. That's what I think. But my friends at Hassett Ford, oh, did I say that? I didn't mean to put their name out there, but they, um, they seem to be giving me a hard time. Anyway, I want your opinions on that and tonight's show and guests and everything else on following your dreams and pursuing your passions. Let us go to Denise in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, W-O-N-D. Go right ahead. Oh, hi. Um, well, before I, I, I initially called because I want to talk about um, the guy with the dream book. It's awesome. Uh, I I think he's just. Yeah, Jose fabulous. Ramon. Very um, good book. Yeah. But uh, um, before I don't don't forget me, I want to talk about that. But I um, mean, you go to New York for a car. Haven't you ever heard of Route 46? <laughs> uh, you know, I live right by Route 46. That's so funny. Uh, you know, I looked for this car t- just to quickly share with you. I know people are calling in, uh, but I am I, um, to, to share with you. I was looking for something that was pre-owned that only had one previous owner that was only a few years old and, and that was never, you know, used commercially or anything like that. And, um, and, and I only found two, one in Manhattan and one on Long Island. And, uh, by the time I, I called the place in Manhattan, the, um, Cadillac dealer, they, they were like, Oh, somebody just put a deposit on it and it may or may not go through. And they called me the next day and said, sorry, it went through the guys picking it up. I said, ah, so I went to the other place and got the other one. And, uh, and those were the only two that came up in the search. And I had been searching for like a month, but I wasn't finding what I was looking for. So, uh, yeah, you're right. There's tons of cars around here, but they weren't, they weren't exactly for me. Now tell me what, what stood out to you about, uh, our interview with Jose Ramon. Oh yeah. He was awesome. Um, first of all, uh, in 1984, a friend of mine said, let's go to a club that's uh, in Little Ferry. It's called the Empire Room. And they have a big band there, 1940s band, and it's good music and what have you. And um, that was a turning point in my life because um, in that was like August of 1984. I went to listen to the band 
and I was watching them. Uh, it was a seventeen-piece band, and um, and I'll say the name of the band because I think the uh, band leader died. His name was Dino and the Dukes of Swing. Great, wow. great band. And um, I wound up going home that night and <laughs> making my mind that I was going to do the same exact thing and have a band. And um, I went the next night, the uh, next uh, week, the same place. <laughs> I got, got the names of everybody in the band, and I started my own band. I was going to say, did um, you start your I've own had, band? It looks like you did. That's awesome. I, and I've had it since 1985. I, are so. you um, a vocalist, or do you play an instrument? No, I just lead the 17-piece band. It's in uh, Fort Lee oh, and um, Atlantic City. Wow. What's the name of the band? The Black Magic Swing Band. Outstanding. Well, good luck to you and the Black Magic Swing Band, Denise. I love that. Fort Lee is a hop, skip, and a jump from me, so I'm going to check you guys out eventually. Thank you for the call and uh, your kind words about uh, uh, my buddy Jose's book. Excellent. Let us continue. Let's go to Akron, Ohio, W-N-I-R. Let's see. Tom. Tom is in Akron. Go right ahead. Yeah. Yes, right on with the Black Magics. <laughs> and Jose was fantastic. And the used car thing, I got a used car. I bought it off of a of a couple who go to California every year on a vacation just to buy an automobile at auction mm-hmm. from a county. And oh wow. I was lucky to get this thing. It had 107 K on it and it's been fantastic. I got, I just turned 150 today and it's just been, yeah, I've had had to do a couple things, but, um, it it was a cash deal. So everything was good. So I have a question for you, Rich. Oh, one, I want to say fantastic on the transition from Jimbo. We miss him so much. Yeah. He was fantastic. Uh, in your introduction with the young lady speaking, uh, she says live from New York and, and there's a ding dong in uh-huh. that. And you don't know what it is, do you? No, I don't. I'm not uh-huh. from America, New York. Uh, that's the, it's, it's kind of hidden code. I didn't make that, but uh, the guy who did produce that uh, is from New York. And uh, that is the sound. When you get on a subway in New York city, there's a AI voice uh, every time the door opens and closes on the subway, it goes, boom, boom, please stand clear of the closing doors. And it's been going on forever. It's incredibly annoying, and only New Yorkers would probably pick up on it. Uh, so I'm, I, it's cool that you noticed the uh, the boom, boom chime. But, yeah, that's what it is. It's the sound of subway doors opening and closing. Okay. Well, it's, I think you're doing a great job. And I'll, I'll tell you, Jose, uh, Jose Ramon was very inspirational. His his tremendous luck having that young gentleman come in with the suitcase and say, I'm in town for a year and I'll I'll do these front windows for nothing just to show you. And wow, that's, that's luck. Yeah, it really is. It's a God thing in my opinion. And I recommend pick up a copy of his book, check him out on, uh, on, on Amazon 
and uh, support the cause. Tom, thank you for listening to the show and for your kind words about my transition and, and being here with you all. It's an honor to me. It really is a privilege, and I love being here. So thank you for your call. We're going to get to the rest of your calls straight ahead. We're going to go to Pittsburgh and then to Michigan, and uh, we got some more coming in. So don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. Rich Valdez, America at Night. Welcome back. And uh, we're going to get to your calls right now. 833-4-VALDES, 833-482-5337. Before we do, I just want to share this story with you because I, I, you know, I I didn't mean this to be funny, but during the break, I was sent the article by our team in the studio and um, it says non-binary ex-Biden official Sam Brinton arrested for yet another baggage theft. Now, if you remember, this is the, the, and I'm going to call him the gentleman because I'm trying to be polite. Uh, but the individual bald headed guy with a beard, not talking about myself. This is the guy who wears a dress and high heels who worked for president uh, Biden, who uh, was the nuclear uh, energy person. And he was caught stealing a, a luggage and he was caught stealing another luggage. Now he's been caught. This is his third arrest for stealing luggage. Listen to this. Britain is being charged with grand larceny in third airport baggage theft case. <clears throat> Crazy. I wonder if the FBI is onto this. And if, if so, somebody call the whistleblowers. Let me know. Sam Brinton, the embattled former senior Department of Energy official, was arrested as a fugitive from justice by Maryland police on Wednesday. According to county records, Brinton was taken into custody in Rockville. A spokesperson for the Metropolitan Washington Airport Authority Police Department um, says that the arrest was related to the theft of airport luggage the third such criminal case involving Mr. Brinton. Absolutely crazy. I don't understand. It took the first two uh, before they even thought of firing this guy. Crazy. But my comment to to my buddy here, um, Mr. Hinton in the studio was, I said, this is clearly a sick man. And I'm thinking, I didn't take him getting arrested three times for the same crime of stealing other people's luggage at an airport to realize he's a sick man. This is a man with a beard and a dress and high heels that is some sort of nuclear scientist. Um, Call me crazy or whatever else you want to call me, but I think that is indicative of someone that's not well. Just, I'm just putting that out there. Anyway, we're going to go to your calls right now. Let us go to uh, Phil in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Go right ahead. Uh, Yeah, Rich, I wanted to talk about um, the guy that was saying about following your dreams and how there's no plan B. Yeah. Yeah. Jose Um, Ramon. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a brief, similar story. Um, I was born in the South and Florida and also lived in new Orleans. But the thing was, neither of those places were of my personal tastes and they didn't make me happy. So I wanted to move to Pittsburgh and people told me that's impossible. You don't know anybody there. You don't have family there. It's not going to work out for you. It's never going to happen. Well, 
20 years later, I've had one good job after another, one nice apartment after another, and I'm still That's here. Good. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to share that story with you. I appreciate that. And let me tell you, I, I was one of those naysayers, not for you, but for myself, right? I mean, and this is coming from a kid when I was 16 years old, I said, I'm going to open a business. And I did, and I did really well with it. But still, I've always second guessed myself on certain things. And you know, a story like yours is, is inspiring to me or like Jose's or anybody who follows their dreams, because I did the things that came easy for me and opening a barbershop coming uh, while I was a senior in high school, honestly, is when I did it. Uh, it didn't seem hard at the time because I had already developed this clientele that I was doing haircuts out of my house. And I already knew where I was going to go to school to get licensed to be a barber and whatnot. So I had, I had everything figured out, but becoming a broadcaster after working in government and being an entrepreneur, this to me was probably the, the biggest leap of faith that I took. And it was because I, I always liked it, always wanted to, to, to be in radio, but I thought, how do you do it? So I would ask people, right? And there's a talker out of New York. Uh, his name is Kevin McCullough. I remember asking Kevin once, I said, how did you get into this? And he said, well, you know, when I was 15, I, I first started working in the studio and he got in and he's like, you know, I started messing around. And then I remember asking someone else that I'd met that was in radio. And I was like, how did you get into radio? And they were like, well, you know, when I was uh, 16, I, you know, I started sweeping the floors in the studio. I volunteered and almost everybody that I spoke to had a story about when they were a teenager and they'd gotten involved somehow. And I thought, my goodness, I'm 39 years old. <laughs> how am I going to do this? You know, how do you make this, this, this transition in career? And, you know, a buddy of mine told me, he gave me some encouraging words and he said, look, man, you know, a lot of people, you can work your contacts, work your Rolodex, figure it out. And, and I did, and that did work. And, uh, and that's how I met uh, Mr. Producer and Mark Levin, the great one. And, you know, the rest was history. Then I had a show on WABC and it just really things snowballed for me. And, and because when you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And, and it, it made me realize that I had, I'd been second guessing myself for decades. You know, I could have made this move earlier in life, but I never believed I could because I didn't do it when I was 16. And just like you, with people telling you, you can't move to Pittsburgh, you'll, it'll never work. And you went from one good job to the next good job and one apartment better than the next. Sometimes what's really for you is there, you know, and I, I associate these things with uh, things that God gives us and blesses us with. And what God's got for you, I think oftentimes always outweighs what we can imagine in our own mind. So kudos to you on your story, and thank you for that. I've never shared that part of my story. I don't think I have, uh, at least not on the air. Uh, but thank you, Phil. I appreciate it. And uh, we're going to continue with your calls, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Let's go to Shields, Michigan, listening online. Kim, go right ahead, Kim. Hi, Rich. I just hey. wanted to say... I uh, of all the, uh, you had a lot of good stuff on tonight, but I want to say God bless Stephen Friend for mm -hmm. coming out and and um, being an FBI whistleblower. And I, I agree with him. The FBI is so far gone. I've said this before to you. It can't be fixed. I agree with him. Just defund it. And he said something about send it back to the states, and maybe if they want, they can hire some good FBI, 
former FBI to help him with investigations and stuff. Didn't he say something like that? Yeah, I think what he was saying was he said he's not against federal law enforcement and that they should continue to work with federal law enforcement. But he felt that the FBI had become uh, almost like a poisonous snake. And he made the reference. He said, you know, they need to be defanged. And um, I I understand where he's coming from. I don't know if getting rid of the FBI and he he alluded to saying that that wasn't his recommendation, but that if that were the only way, that would be the only way. Um, I I agree that we need to take a look at the FBI because it's this is not a a years old problem. I think it's a decades long problem that we have to look at. And, And sometimes that's the only way is to eliminate that. And that won't fix every problem. That'll fix just, you know, a handful of problems. Corrupt people are still going to be corrupt and and they're still going to, you know, do unscrupulous things. But if they don't have a place to do it and the cover and the support and the budget and all of that umbrella that they're given in the FBI, the power of the FBI, then, you know, that is uh, kind of putting an end to that. And I, I would, you know, I'm not going to make a, a, a rash call today to say we must end the FBI. I do believe you've got to go through some steps, right? So I think uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene recently said we have to impeach Director Ray. I think that's a conversation we should have, right? We should uh, have the hearings and go through the impeachment process and see what happens. And, you know, if, if he decides to move on or if something else happens where they do get rid of him, whatever, then, you know, we have to make sure we get the right person in there. And with Biden in office making those recommendations, I don't know if we're going to get that. So, you know, even if we get rid of Mayorkas, I don't know what we get as a replacement. But eventually, I think there's a Republican administration and we can only hope that whomever this Republican is, is going to pick the right person for the job. And again, they may not. Right. I mean, I've had to hire people in the past and they weren't the right people. Sometimes you hire somebody and they're the right person for right now. And then time goes on then they're not the right person anymore. And, you know, the hiring decisions are never easy. But uh, I think that's probably a good first step is trying to get somebody who's the right guy, a new sheriff in town, clean the place up, write the the course, because I can't help but think most people that go to the FBI don't go there with the corruption in mind. They go there with service in mind, service before self. And and I think they're there and they're they're serving this country and they're serving the American people. And they're just like these whistleblowers. They're they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And I think once you get rid of, uh, you know, the fish rotting from the head, uh, it won't rot anymore. Right. If you if you get the head, get rid of the head, get rid of the leadership, replace it. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the rot is too deep and it's it's far gone. Then then you got to do what you got to do. But I think we got to take it in steps to see where we end up. And, and lamentably, it may end up with, you know, getting rid of the FBI and and coming up with a new federal type of thing. Um, which I think we already have. We have the Federal Protective Service. There's so much federal law enforcement out there. Um, just I think that they've always thrived on being the best investigators and having the best investigative prowess. You know, if it was bank robberies. They were the guys that caught the, the bank robbers. So, I mean, some form of that I think would still always be necessary, some sort of federal investigative police. Uh, but, you know, your guess is as good as mine, Kim. I, that's where I am on that one. And I appreciate the call. Really, really uh, good thoughts uh, on that. And I appreciate Steve Friend's commentary tonight as well. I thought it was a really good interview. If you missed it, make sure you check it out on the podcast. Any of our guests tonight, you can check it out at richvaldezamericaatnight.com. Don't move a muscle. We're coming back. I want you to hear what um, Stacey Plaskett had to say in 
the uh, hearing today. I thought it was um, really well put, even though I disagreed with every single word of it. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, I think it's important that we recognize this hearing for what it actually is. Make no mistake, this hearing is a vehicle to legitimize the events of January 6th and the people who perpetrated it. And why? Because Donald Trump is running for president again. And if you normalize the events of January 6th, if you repeat his election fraud lies, then maybe he doesn't seem quite so extreme. Maybe it will be easier to overturn a free and fair election the next time. So that is Representative Linda Sanchez, Democrat from California, at the uh, weaponization of government hearing today, subcommittee hearing. And she says that this whole thing, this whole hearing, this whole exercise in allowing whistleblowers to be heard in front of Congress The whole thing is a vehicle to legitimize January 6th. Now, I can't see how that's true in any way. I don't think, I can only speak for myself, but January 6th was illegitimate. I don't think anything will ever legitimize January 6th. How could that be? Right? I think both sides of the aisle agree that it was wrong. You might have a few people that are like, yeah, yeah, they deserved it. But that's a a small minority of people. The whole thing is illegitimate. We've seen, we've talked with Cash Patel. We've talked with, um, uh, is his name Miller, Secretary Miller, who was uh, the, the DOD secretary at the time. I mean, we, we've talked to lots of people on this program. The whole thing was illegitimate. So I, I don't see how she says that this will legitimize January 6th. I just don't see how that makes any sense in any way. I don't think there's a person out there that's going to go, oh, you know what? We should go and bum rush the Capitol. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's saying that. That's not even a thing. But it, it, this is the rhetoric they have. Now, when I said that there are some good rhetoricians in, um, in, in the Democrat Party, this is not one of the ones I was talking about. But I was talking about Stacey Plaskett, who usually says crazy off-the-wall things. But today, I think she made uh, some comments that were very slogany or sloganish, if you will making references to to saying that, you know, this in uh, committee is really the defunding of the police on steroids. I thought this was a clever thing because she tried to do what anybody would do in a, an argument is put it on your opponent. And she put it on, on her opponent in a way that I felt if you were not well-versed in what was going on, you might really think that what she was saying was somehow meritorious, that somehow she made sense on some level. And I disagree with everything she had to say, but I want you to listen to this. Less than two months ago, former President Trump, facing mounting investigations into his many alleged crimes, declared that, quote, 
Republicans in Congress should defund the DOJ and the FBI until they can come to their senses. And we all know that when Trump says jump, the Republicans in the House say, how high? So here we are, on police week, watching House Republicans jump to lay the foundation to defund law enforcement. My colleagues on the far right are on a mission to attack, discredit, and ultimately dismantle the FBI. This is defund the police on steroids. That's Representative Stacey Plaskett. And uh, I got to tell you, this is if you hear that, you can be inspired and say, oh, my gosh, Republicans are really making life less safe for us. Republicans are really trying to get rid of law enforcement because she was so convincing. Right. If, if you didn't know that she was so full of crap, you would almost believe this stuff. And lamentably, there are so many people. The way I look at sports is a lot the way a lot of people look at politics. You know, you could tell me about this uh, New York team, you know, the, the New York, uh, I don't know, Wizards. And I go, oh, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do I know about that, right? I, I don't know anything about that. And I feel like so many people observe politics that way too. Now, of course, not you in this audience. You guys are up to speed on everything, especially what's going on at night. But I look at this and I think, hmm, this, this is not good. And this is why we have to have informed patriots in our population that know what's going on, that are attuned to the truth, attuned to the facts so they can help decipher this news with uh, their fellow man, their neighbors, their friends, and their colleagues, because uh, disinformation and misinformation are truly out of control. Anyway, uh, your calls and more coming up right now. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back to the phones. We go. Let's go to Pete in Dallas, Texas. K-L-I-F. Go right ahead, brother. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rich. Appreciate you. You keep me awake on those late nights when I'm driving back home. Thank um, God I'm not putting you to sleep. 40, yeah, as far as your car tags, within 48 hours of the dealership, and I've sold thousands of cars, we get them into the county. But sometimes you get some of these bureaucratic counties that, take a little too long, 15 days past expiration. We've had to call all the way in Texas down to Secretary of State to get the county to hurry up. Call mm. your county or your DMV, find out when they registered it. If the dealership sat on the money and was playing with it, that slowed it down. It's the dealership's responsibility. They can even email you a temp tag to get you through. Look, at, that's what I was county. thinking. If, yeah, and the county will tell you when it got over there. The county can also say, hey, we mailed it out three weeks ago and Guess what? U.S. Post Office isn't a really good government employee either. Yeah, well, Someday. the folks at Hassett Ford have told me that they, they started the process this week, but it was supposed to start in uh, April 20th. <laughs> and the reason that it was because they said they didn't have my Social Security number, which I gave them back on April 20th. So I just thought, I don't understand this process. This is the craziest thing ever. Why don't you just mail me or email me a thing so I could throw it in my window and not have an issue? And their response was, well, if you get pulled over, We'll pay your ticket. And I'm thinking that that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. 
in Texas, they don't really care. They understand some of these counties are a little bit slow and they wouldn't ticket you. They just let you yeah. go. I've been pulled over. I bought one in Oklahoma. It took them six months one time to get me a plate. Wow. Um, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's good I to know. I got pulled over but... multiple times. That's nice to yeah. see the local police department. Yeah, I guess that's a nice thing too. I just, I, I don't want to get pulled over. <laughs> I want to live my life unmolested, unobstructed, you know, and if, it, especially if, you know, if you pull me over for me speeding, that's on me. But you pull me over because somebody didn't do paperwork, right? That they charged me, in my opinion, they charged me twice for it and a lot. You know, who pays $500 for registration transfer? But that's what it was. Anyway, they got me. They got me. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate it. I uh, really do appreciate your call. Big shout out to everybody listening in Dallas on KLIF. Great station out there. And we're going to do this again tomorrow. Hasta la próxima. Until the next time, take care, good night, and God bless. And keep it locked right on this station for more programming following this show. I'll see you tomorrow. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.